Acts chapter 2 this morning. Thank you for gathering to worship with us this morning, for giving the Lord the glory that he is due, and for speaking to each other in these songs of the truth that sustains our Christian faith, not only through the generations, but through the moments and the hours of this coming week. Today is unique in that you are essentially taking notes on Peter's sermon. I'm really just highlighting his outline this morning, but you will be able to follow along in the text and and hear exactly what Peter presented on that day of Pentecost so many years ago. And what you'll see is that Peter is making the argument that Jesus is the Christ and that Jesus is the Lord. So Peter's theme then is really our theme this morning. Jesus Christ is Lord. To make this point, Peter unfolds the drama of redemption, focused on the drama's key character, Jesus of Nazareth. We begin there in verse 22, as Peter begins his sermon. He addresses the men of Israel and admonishes them to hear these words, but his sermon begins with a name, a historical figure, a real person, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you'll see throughout Peter's sermon that he doesn't get into all the systematic theology that could surround so many of his points. Here, it's wise for us to remember that this is God the Son, taking on human flesh. So still the nature of God, but adding the nature of humanity. He's Jesus, born of Mary, having grown up in Nazareth. A real person, and yet we know him to be the Son of God. Jesus. Given this name because the angel had told his parents, This name will be fitting because he will save his people from their sins. What this teaches us is that this Jesus of Nazareth is actually God's agent of redemption. Jesus, Savior, he's the anointed one. This is the promised one that God sent to fulfill his promise that he would save his people from their sins. The title for this sent one, this anointed one chosen to accomplish God's plan is Christ, or in the more Jewish language, the Messiah. So this sent one, this agent of God, would accomplish our redemption. So his name isn't Christ, It's really his title that has become so one with Jesus of Nazareth that we use it as a name. We call him Christ or the Christ. But Peter's point is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the sent Savior. Jesus anointed to accomplish our redemption. He is sent by God, the servant of God, in order to rescue the people of God. Jesus of Nazareth is quite an introduction. 
And Jesus' ministry had quite the introduction. After 400 years of silence where God gave no revelation to his people and worked no signs or wonders, suddenly Jesus appears. And you can remember his early ministry. He attended a wedding of some friends and they ran out of wine. And so Jesus tells the servants to fill these vast pitchers full of water and he turns the water into wine. In his first miracle that John chose as a sign of who he is, Peter reminds us that this Jesus of Nazareth This sent savior, this rescuer is no common figure in a story, but rather this man was attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Now Peter is addressing not only the close followers of Jesus who would have seen many of these miracles, but he's addressing many of the Jews who would have heard of these miracles. They would have seen some of them. Those stories had run throughout Jerusalem, Judea, up through Samaria, all the way up to Galilee. Jesus was known as a miracle worker. And Peter capitalizes on that established knowledge And he says, those signs were confirmations by God of who Jesus is. He has come as the Savior of sinners. This truth of Jesus' divine origin and his divine identity, that truth is confirmed by God in these miraculous signs that Jesus did. Now, they are no less an act of compassion for when Jesus healed a blind man or a lame man or the woman with the issue of blood or the host of others, there was an act of kindness interacting with that individual heart to deal with them and their faith. But when we step back from those collective signs and wonders, we see their purpose clearly to establish who it is that was doing these miracles confirmed that Jesus was indeed Savior of sinners sent by God to accomplish redemption. John would record in his gospel account a number of these signs, and he would tell us why. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Peter is, yes, proving who Jesus is, But Peter is introducing the gospel when he says, Jesus of Nazareth confirmed by signs and wonders. He's saying those signs and wonders tell us something. Not just that Jesus can heal bodies, but that Jesus can heal souls. Believe in this Jesus. This is good news that God has sent his son to us. So Peter identifies this historical Jesus as the Son of God, and then he unfolds immediately his saving work in verse 23. This Jesus, agent of redemption, Old Testament promised Messiah, and now he's here, Jesus of Nazareth. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you 
crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You are guilty, Peter says. In cooperation with the Romans, you crucified and killed this Jesus, whose name represents all of God's plan to save. We're given two descriptions of Christ's death in this short statement in Peter's sermon. It was by the hands of lawless men. First, we see the crucifixion of Jesus was the sinful plan of men. We can't look at it without seeing the injustice, the law-breaking that occurred in the trial and execution of Jesus. We hear the Roman centurion even saying, truly, this was an innocent man. Not that Rome had too many qualms about crucifying innocent people. They did it all the time in their conquered nations to establish a mindset that Rome is in charge. We do what we want. Peter's point is, you're guilty. It was a wicked plan of the Jews that brought in the Romans who in their lawlessness cooperated gladly with the process. It was the sinful plan of men. But Peter says something else about the crucifixion of Jesus, that it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Those are actually synonymous. They're not two different descriptions. A definite plan is what foreknowledge means. It doesn't mean he just knew about it in advance. It means he determined it to be. His knowledge determined something. So it was a definite plan. It was the foreordained knowledge and purpose of God. You see, the cross displays the lawlessness of sinful men and the love of a saving God. This saving plan of God is at work at Calvary, even as we see the betrayal of Judas, the law-breaking of the Jews, the, the sinfulness of the Romans. Purely, Peter is clearly stating here that humans, men, are responsible for their sinful choice of killing Jesus. And Peter also clearly says that God was purposeful in his plan to sacrifice his son for the salvation of his people. Here's what we have to step back and consider. We have to make sure we are clear in our minds that human responsibility for sinful choices and divine sovereignty in the death of Christ are not enemies. They are not logically contradictory. Men can be responsible for their sinful choice even as God was working out his predetermined plan. In this terrible injustice, the death of Christ at the hands of sinful men, in this injustice, we see the sovereignty of God on display to show that the worst evil of man is swallowed up in the good plan of God. In, in theological debates, we, we often think it's this logical contradiction 
what man does, sometimes we call it free will, we're probably best to call it, as Peter would, their responsibility. The responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. They do not contradict. They exist together. Man is responsible for sin in the death of Christ, and yet God was working all things according to the counsel of his will. John would say it this way in the broadest of terms using simple analogy. John chapter 1, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Sin rallied its finest effort to extinguish the light. And God said, that's exactly what I need. The death of my son for the salvation of my people. You know, in the Old Testament, we caught a glimpse of this concept. Joseph's brothers are terrified when they realize that their brother, their little brother, their kid brother that they sold into slavery is now the ruler of Egypt. And they're kneeling before him. And yet Joseph offers forgiveness and peace based on his faith in God's predetermined plan. And he tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To understand that, we have to know what the it is. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it, hating me and selling me into slavery. You meant that act of evil from your evil hearts. You meant that for evil. But God meant that act of Joseph being hated by his brothers. God purposed that selling into slavery to get Joseph exactly where he needed to be, as the text in Genesis says, for the salvation of many. It was setting the stage in our minds to understand sinners will do their worst and they will stand before God and be accountable for it. But the worst of sinners, every power of hell and every scheme of man, as we just sang, can never thwart the saving plan of God. So see in Peter's message, though it's short, it's just a sentence, He's just driving towards the reality of their guilt so he can call them to repentance. This Jesus, you crucified with lawless men, you're guilty, you're wicked. But God is greater than the wickedness of man. The darkness has not overcome the light. This is the gospel that we rejoice in on resurrection morning. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of all the darkness, nations invaded, leaving hundreds of orphans, schools invaded, shootings, governments being corrupted, culture defined by decadence, be reminded that the light came into this darkness. 
but that darkness has not overcome the light. Believe from Peter's short emphasis here that God works all things for our good. Peter wants us to know that our God reigns. Even when the world seems to be at its darkest. Those words are significant in Peter's message. Jesus, this Jesus, crucified and killed. But as the song says, then came the morning. Night turned into day. The stone was rolled away and hope rose with the dawn. Then came the morning. Shadows vanished before the sun. Death had lost and life had won, for morning had come. So Peter quickly transitions to the morning. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Loosing the pangs of death. Peter surely remembered running to the tomb, partly because he took off and then he saw the disciple John run right past him, a little faster than Peter was. John got there but dared not enter. He's peering into the tomb. The text tells us Peter caught up to him, and as we know Peter to be a bit brash, he rushed right into the tomb and tried to take in these grave clothes with no body. Surely he remembered that as he penned these words. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death. When we hear God raised him up, we think, number one, the resurrection was the death of death. We sang it as he stands in victory Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. How, how, how can that be? By the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. His resurrection marked the death of death. Peter goes on to anchor his eyewitness thoughts, seeing that empty tomb, in the promise of the Old Testament, that this indeed was God's plan all along, to raise Christ from the dead. He cites Psalm 16, and your Bible may have that passage set apart as a quotation, beginning in verse 25. He says, this is the message that David gave, this is the song that David sang, with the emphasis on verse 27, you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Peter explains, David wasn't writing this about himself because David died. And he, and he makes the point to the Jewish people, King David's tomb is right here in the city of Jerusalem. He's been dead for years. His body has seen corruption. He wasn't writing about himself. It wasn't an autobiography. It was a prophecy. David was speaking of the coming Messiah when he wrote, You will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. David was speaking as a prophet, telling of God's plan 
for resurrection victory. God raised him up. Peter's point is God's word is true. He said he would do this. God's word is true. Jesus is alive. Your salvation is sure. You can live victoriously because this whole plan is God's plan for his church. God raised him up. Now look at verse 33. Being, therefore, exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, speaking of Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. All those signs of the Holy Spirit, the rushing wind, the tongues of flaming fire, all that they've seen on that day of Pentecost is that pouring out of the Spirit. And again, he cites the Old Testament Scriptures, now Psalm 110. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says... The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Well, we need to examine this exalted to the right hand of God. Jesus was raised from the dead that Sunday morning. And now for 40 days, he taught them. He ascends to heaven, 10 more days of waiting. And then this day of Pentecost as Peter is preaching. He says, being therefore exalted, since that's what has happened, he's at the right hand of God. While he was there, the disciples are gazing up into the clouds. But Jesus was clear to them, they would not be left alone. They would not be left bewildered about what to do. Rather, they would be empowered by the Spirit and commissioned with a task. And our text says... That Jesus, by the Father, pours out the Spirit. Jesus gave the Spirit. And to establish the truth of what's going on, Jesus sitting on the throne while the Spirit is poured out, he cites Psalm 110. The Lord, speaking of the Father, said to my Lord, the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The question is, what's the connection here between Psalm 110, Christ seated, waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool, and the pouring out of the Spirit, what's going on at Pentecost? You would think we'd quote something about the empowerment of that Spirit for the church. So why are we referencing Jesus seated and waiting? Well, Jesus gave the Spirit, yes, but why? Why? Jesus gave the Spirit, secondly, we see, for the advance of the kingdom. Remember, that's the theme of our study in the book of Acts, that the kingdom of God is advancing and Peter is making it clear in his preaching here. Yes, Jesus, who God raised up, we're all witnesses of that. He's sitting on the throne. He's poured out the Spirit, and he's waiting for all of his enemies to be made his footstool. 
How do the enemies of God be made the footstool of Jesus? In the advance of the church. In the gathering like this body where we commit to resurrection power, to living in holiness, to sharing the gospel. And one by one, the enemies of God fall until God says enough, victory has been accomplished. Satisfied. And Christ, the King of Kings, comes back, takes his church home, and we enter the everlasting state. Peter is making it clear that what they had heard in a small group session in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, and you'll have power to do it, is now the message for all the church that Jesus is seated on his throne, but by the power of his spirit in his church, the kingdom is advancing and the gates of hell will not prevail. They're going to get pushed down, pushed open, knocked over. Just like all the physical illustrations we see in the Old Testament. Jericho. God's people just walked around and the walls fell. That's a picture of what Peter's talking about. Jesus is seated on the throne. And walls are still falling by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you pray this week for that coworker who is so stubbornly antagonistic to the gospel, just pray in a circle. Pretend you're walking around the wall because Jesus is seated on his throne. He's not coming down to do something spectacular or different. He said the spectacular is in you, the power of the Holy Spirit. So give testimony to Christ boldly and watch the kingdom advance. Jesus gave the spirit for the advance of the kingdom. He's waiting. He's waiting till all his enemies are made his footstool. Then Peter drives home his conclusion. Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In his conclusion, Peter wants to make abundantly clear the certainty of Christ's rule. Know for certain that Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules. He's at the right hand of God. He's seated on a throne. And he's empowered his church. He's the Lord. But then we brace ourselves for Peter's kind of last shot of truth. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's where he began. Jesus of Nazareth, sent by God, attested by God. You crucified and killed. And the conclusion makes a bookend to this sermon. You crucified Jesus, information in the middle. You crucified Jesus. Remember, his sermon is trying to establish this thesis. Jesus Christ is Lord. And the stinging conclusion and introduction is, you crucified him. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's seated on a throne accomplishing all of his will, 
and you crucified him. So know the certainty of Christ's rule, but know for certain as well their guilt, our guilt, the guilt of humanity. And under conviction, as Peter drives home, know for certain he was Lord and that you killed him. They cry out, what do we do? What is the remedy for someone who experienced God come in the flesh and they crucified him as a common criminal? What is the remedy for a people who in the moment of justice trying to be determined, screamed out as an angry mob, his blood be on us. And let that guilt be on our children too. We'll gladly suffer that guilt as long as he dies. Now the story has changed. Peter has established by the power of the Holy Spirit that that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the Lord of heaven and earth, and you killed him. And suddenly the thought of standing before their maker, they're not so emboldened to say, doesn't matter, his blood be upon us and our children. Suddenly they're desperate for a rescue, for an escape. What shall we do? interesting this question was asked without quite the intensity to Jesus by a rich young man who was asking about eternal life what must I do to be saved Jesus got to the heart of his question and the man wasn't satisfied with the answer and went away frustrated and disappointed and the disciples asked Jesus how can anyone be saved And Jesus' answer was this, they can't. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So what does it mean when Peter says, do something? When Jesus had said, it's impossible. There's nothing you can do. God has to do it. What it means is that when we hear Peter speak and say, repent and be baptized, every one of you, we know that God is at work in the lives of these people, bringing the conviction of the Holy Spirit on them to be desperately searching for the escape from their sin. Ready to hear the words, repent, or call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Unless you think that's Reading into the text, look on just a little bit further. As Peter says in verse 39, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who is going to respond to the message, repent or you'll all likewise perish? Who will respond to the call to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved? It will be those from all over the world whom God calls. 
There is a general call of the gospel that you and I give everywhere we go. Give the gospel to every creature, Mark concludes. But there is an effectual call of God, as pointed as the call to Lazarus to come out of the grave, that draws men and women to repentance and faith. Under conviction, these people ask, what should we do? And Peter's answer is clear. Repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. Now, that's a hard English expression to read. It could be tapered a little bit to think even repent and believe in regard to or with forgiveness of sins in mind. Because if we're thinking about how do I get forgiveness of sins, which is their question, do we typically think in terms of repent and be baptized and that's how your sins are forgiven? We don't. We typically think of repent and believe as being together. So, for example, the thief on the cross, he believes, but he was never baptized, and yet the promise of Jesus to him was, you will be in paradise with me. You'll go to heaven, and baptism isn't the requirement. So why does Peter say repent and be baptized in regard to this forgiveness of sins? Well, we come back to the big picture. What was Peter's theme in this message? His theme is Jesus Christ is Lord. And he says it multiple times. He drives it home in verse 36. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What should we do? Repent, Peter says. And let me phrase it this way and declare the lordship of Jesus. Because ultimately, that's what baptism is doing. You're identifying with Jesus. Yes, whose death, burial, and resurrection saves you. But your testimony is not just that Jesus saves. That's the gospel message. The baptism message is that you identify with Jesus in his saving power. So Peter is saying... Repent because you crucified the Lord. You were once opposed to him. And be baptized, meaning identify with him, declare your allegiance to him. And frankly, in the New Testament era here, we see a profession of faith in Jesus went hand in hand with baptism. There was just not really any such thing as saying you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized. It, just, it was just part and parcel to the meaning of baptism to them. So when Jews baptized proselytes, Gentiles who came to believe Judaism, they were identifying with Judaism in their baptism. There are other baptisms that would help these people understand this identification. Peter is not saying you have to be baptized in order to be saved. That teaching exists. It's called baptismal regeneration. You're not saved until you are also baptized, regardless of repentance and faith. That doesn't fit with Scripture. Here, this text, which is often cited for that doctrine, is misunderstanding what Peter has just labored to unfold, that Jesus Christ is Lord, and rather than bowing to him, you crucified him. And the remedy is repent, and name him as Lord. 
Lord of all. And then scripture concludes by telling us that by this love-aimed, life-giving call of God, 3,000 people are brought into the family of God. 3,000 people on that day yielded to the lordship of Christ. And when we hear that number, it's a lot of people, but we know buildings that hold more than that. We know churches that are bigger than that even. So we can't be wowed just by the number. Wow, 3,000 in one sermon. Not the first time and God willing, not the last. That many people would hear and believe. So why are we given a number? Why are we given a big number? What do we do with it? We remember that this is the day of Pentecost. And this is but the first fruits. This is but a token. You could bring your first fruit. You could walk into your field and grab literally with two hands what could satisfy the requirement of the offering of the first fruit. And then you could go fill bushel after bushel stall after stall, barn after barn with the harvest, and those first fruits would seem so minuscule compared to the exponential reality of the harvest. 3,000 souls, that's great. But it's just the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. 3,000 people on that day yielded to Jesus as Lord, Perhaps most pointedly, the application would be, have you? Have you yielded to Jesus as Lord? You stand guilty before God. And yet God says, if you'll hide yourself by faith in the righteousness of Christ, in his death and resurrection, then you're declared righteous, forgiven, and alive forevermore in him. Jesus Christ is Lord. This is Peter's message at Pentecost. And it's a powerful message because every one of those names or titles means something that determine eternity. Jesus Christ is Lord. We echoed that theme as we sang, he's the Lion of Judah, that Old Testament figure emerging through the the shadowy expressions and types of the Old Testament till we see him clearly in human form. We, We could touch him and handle him, the apostles said. Jesus of Nazareth, he is David's root and the lamb who died to ransom the slave. He's Lord He's Lord of our sin. He's Lord of our chains, Lord of our bondage, Lord of our past, our guilt, our shame. He takes it all and makes us his own. We're a kingdom of God. We are priests to God. And so our hearts cry out, Jesus is Lord. And he's worthy of all of our praise. Oh God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for the plan of redemption. We are resting in the righteous life, in the sinless death, in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
and we are hoping expectantly in the coming of our King, the Savior, the Christ, this Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.